Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. Today's message is titled, How to Be Fierce Followers of Christ. Intense people. I want to know, do you, do you know anyone who meets this criteria? When I think of intense people, so many individuals immediately come to my mind. But atop of that list is Adam Brown. Last month, I had the men of our church read through a book called Fearless, which is a biography written about a Navy SEAL who died in Afghanistan in 2011. Adam was intense. He lived his life on the attack. He trained hard. He worked hard. He loved hard. One of the most intense stories shared about Adam in the book was a time while training with simulation rounds, he received fire from the enemy and took a simulation round in his right dominant eye. He rushed out of the training facility holding his hand over his eye as blood was dripping through his fingers onto the ground. And later that week, the doctors confirmed that he had lost the sight out of most of his dominant right eye. Well, as you can suspect, not having your dominant eye is a bit of a problem in combat. It's a bit of a problem when you're firing a gun. And so it prevented him... From, from, from being in combat for a season. But Adam refused this news, and he decided to learn to shoot with his non-dominant left eye, which he was able to accomplish within a few short months. He became the first individual in U.S. Navy history to lose his dominant eye and relearn to shoot with his other eye and then recertify in sniper school with a left eye. Adam was intense. Is intensity reserved only for the atoms of the world? Is intensity only reserved for the Navy SEALs, the, the Green Berets, the Marines of the world? And should Christians even be interested in intensity? Well, I think those questions are going to be answered for us today in our text. Not only does the Apostle Paul model a Christian intensity that would rival the greatest military leaders of our world, but he strongly commands, in verse 15, those who are mature should think this way. Intensity should not be an interest only reserved for a few in our world. Christian intensity should be the attitude of each and every one of us. Why is this important? Because Paul teaches us in this text to forget the past and press on towards the future so that you might live your life for Christ for the rest of your life. 
that you might live for Christ for the rest of your life. The motivation and the instruction for this command come to us in three ways this morning. And these three ways will serve as our three points. But before we dive into those three ways, let's turn our attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message. That is the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward, to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, for God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. Let's go to the Lord quickly in prayer to ask for his help. Lord, we love you, and we come by faith right now in prayer, and we ask for this thing, this one thing, that you'd please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point this morning is keep on keeping on. Verses 12 to 16. Paul's main point in this section is highlighted for us in verse 12, where he says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now, we immediately have a question that we have to answer in this text. What is it that Paul is pressing on to make his own? Well, the answer is the entire ambition that he details for us in verse 10, namely that he would know God, that he would know him, that he would share in his sufferings, and that he would attain the resurrection from the dead. So friends, how can we press on in order to know God, share in Christ's sufferings, and attain the resurrection from the dead? This was Paul's great pressing. This was his great ambition, his great goal. How can we press on in order to do these things? 
Well, I think that Paul provides us with two ways in which we can pursue this ambition. The first is this, to press on and to strain forward. Paul is borrowing language and and doing this from the competitive runners of his day. Paul views the Christian life like a race. He views it like a race in this passage, and he views it like a race in other passages in the New Testament. He views the Christian life like a race, which is not run in competition with other Christians, but is run in order to win the prize of gaining Christ. It's run in order to cross the finish line faithful. So he tells the Philippian church, I press on to make it my own. Verse 12. Now the force of Paul's language is really lost in our English translations, but his point pops in the original. Here's what he means. I press on to make it my own. Here's what he means. I pursue it to seize it. To make it my own means to seize with hostile intention. He's in our face this morning. Paul's in our face. He's using words like seize. That's not a word I use on a daily basis. So Paul's not just borrowing from the world of athletics, from the world of competition running. He's also borrowing from the world of warfare. He's talking about overtaking. Now, when I hear this word seize, I think of a game that I played as a kid called Capture the Flag. Now, you know the objective for this game is that a team is deployed. They deploy their their personnel to strategically try and gain access to the other team's flag and seize possession of it. That's when you've won. Paul's saying to the Christian, though I've not won... Though I have not seized it, that is, not fully arrived at the conclusion of knowing God, sharing totally in Christ's sufferings, attaining the resurrection, though I have not arrived there, I've resolved to press on to win. I've resolved to seize. We know what else he says. Verse 13, he says, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I strain forward to what lies ahead. So picture this in your mind. A marathon runner is nearing the finish line. Instead of, and instead of slowing down, looking over his shoulder to check on the competition, check on how everybody else is faring, he leans forward with his He leans forward with his head stretched out and his hands stretched out across the finish line. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us here. He's straining forward. That's the picture. If you see Paul in his Christian life, he's not sitting back in his lazy boy. He's straining forward. The posture of his life, he's always in the ready. He's leaning forward, his head stretched out. Paul, why so intense? Because life is intense. Let's go. That's Paul. 
That's the, that's the picture that Paul's painting for us in this text. Listen, this is what's even perhaps more mind-blowing. At this point where Paul's writing Philippians, he's, he's some 30 years into his walk with Jesus. He's some 30 years into his walk with Christ. This isn't his new zeal. You know, we go to camp and we come back. and Everybody coming back from camp is leaning forward with arms stretched out, neck stretched out. That's not impressive. You show me somebody who's been running with Christ for 30 years and they're still like that. That's impressive. That's attractive. That's something that we want to emulate. He's 30 years into his walk with Christ and his vision for the rest of his life is that he would lean forward, he would strain forward, he would press on towards the goal of knowing God, sharing Christ's sufferings, and attaining the resurrection from the dead. Friend, let me ask you a sobering question. Is this the vision for your life? Someone took a series of pictures of your life you weren't watching. Someone took a series of pictures of your life when you weren't watching. And weeks later, they laid them all out on a table, filled the entire table up. Would you be found with a posture in the Christian life that looks like someone who's straining forward, whose neck is stretched out, whose arms are stretched out, trying to reach the finish line? Or would you see someone who's is just taking it easy in the Christian life. You're not passionately pursuing Christ anymore. You're not trying to lay your life down for your wife. You're not trying to serve your children, be patient, gentle, kind, respectful. You're not trying to work your hardest to outwork everybody at work so that you might bring glory to God. You're not trying to witness to your neighbors. You're just sort of taking it easy. What's the vision for your life, friend? My young Christian friend, Though you perhaps are just beginning your run, just beginning your race with Christ, can you visualize finishing, crossing the finish line? My older Christian friends, though you've been running for a long time, you might be getting weary, can you visualize finishing like Paul? Listen, friends, we cannot fall asleep in our foxholes. Paul is here like a good commander, calling us up, scared as we might be, tired as we might be, calling us up out of the foxholes and saying, press on, soldier. Move forward. But it's important to know at this point, okay, we're going somewhere. We got a commander who's taking us. Get up out of your fox. Oh, go, go, go. It's important to know, okay, where are we going? <laughs> this is pretty important. So in verses 14 to 16, he provides us with an aim. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Aimless intensity is a worthless exertion of energy. 
But the kind of intensity that Paul wants the Christian to have has a particular objective in mind. It has a goal. It has a prize in sight. This verse gives us a behind-the-scenes pass to see what propels Paul through the discouraging days. And it is his view of the end of all days. Think about it like this. What gets a runner through the hardest moments of a race? Isn't it, isn't it the prize that's presented to the winner? Well, that's, that's what Paul pictures as well in the Christian life. He pictures crossing the finish line of life faithfully and standing before God, hearing him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25, 21. Friend, that's the prize. That's, that's the goal that I want to hear. That's what I want to hear when I close my eyes in this life and open them in eternity. I want to hear the Lord say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Paul pictures the prize. And in verse 15, he tells us that he wants all those who are mature to think this way as well. So, we accomplish this by straining forward, by pressing on. We also accomplish this by, by forgetting what lies behind. Praise God. That this is biblical instruction, right? Praise God that it is biblical instruction to forget what lies behind. Everybody in our culture is not about forgetting what you've done in your past. They're about bringing things back up over and over again. Things that you've long buried 25 years ago. But they're about bringing that. You know what the Bible says? Forget what lies behind. Praise God, this is biblical instruction for a sinner like me. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do. You hear Paul say that? If you ever hear Paul say one thing I do, you should feel like, oh, I should really pay attention. One thing I do? Whoa, okay, wow. Forgetting what lies behind, it's straining forward what lies, be, what, what, what lies ahead. So friend, what exactly are we called to forget? There are two things that unless we forget, could kill our Christianity. The first is we have to forget our failures. We have to forget our failures. Few things hold us back from intensely following Jesus like our failures do. We might call this the failure to launch syndrome. The failure to launch complex. Sometimes we get stopped before we even get started because we are flooded with memories of failure, flooded with memories of the thought that we tried that thing before and we failed. So what can we do about it? Well, you remember Adam Brown from our introduction? One of my, one of my heroes, an Arkansan, a Navy SEAL, a man amongst men. 
Another amazing thing about Adam's life was his, was his history of overcoming failure. Adam enlisted as a 26-year-old into the United States Navy, where he became a Navy SEAL. Why was he so old when he enlisted? You don't see many 26-year-olds enlisting into the SEALs. He was this old because he had struggled with a meth addiction for years and years and years before this time. Even after he became a Christian, around the age of 25, he had moments of relapse. And for the rest of his life, he heard the drug calling his name. Adam Brown, like Jacob in the Old Testament, walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And though he was changed by his past, he was not chained to his past. Friends, are you chained to your past? If you are, what in the world can be done about it? Well, Paul tells us that we should think this way. Verse 12, I press on to make it my own. And then he puts this word, because. And that word, because, gives us an insight into truth that he takes hold of that gives him the ability to forget what lies behind. What is that thing? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ taking hold of us and making us his own should give us the undying confidence in God's providence. God is so powerful. Here's what it means to have an undying confidence in God's providence. God is so powerful. He's so sovereign that even his purposes are not thwarted by our failures and our sins. Therefore, friends, we should not try to fix all of our failures before coming to Christ, before expecting him to use us, before confidently walking in his mercy and grace and receiving the assurance of salvation. The Lord wants us to come to him by faith as we are. Come, weak and weary sinners. Come to me, all who are weak, all who are weary, and find rest. We don't fix ourselves up to come to Christ and make ourselves acceptable to Him. He says, come to me as you are. I died for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. I died for the sinner, not for those who don't think they need a Savior. Though our failures in the past oftentimes make us feel disqualified, ashamed, and condemned. Jesus says to the Christian, really sweet words, you are mine. <laughs> what sweeter words could you hear from the Savior? Jesus says to his people, you are mine. Forget what lies behind. It's strained forward to what lies ahead. 
That's an order. Here's another thing that we have to forget. We have to forget our failures. What else do we have to forget? We have to forget our successes. We have to forget our successes. Listen to this. I don't like quoting this guy, but he's really good at his job. Nick Saban, the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, is often heard telling reporters that positive news concerning his team's accomplishments is like rat poison. It kills their drive to take hold of the prize. So too with our Christian life, friends. Cuddling up with complacency will kill our Christianity. Look at Paul. Who was a, he was a man with so many accomplishments. He was well educated. He was highly esteemed and respected among Christians of his day. And in our day and in days since his day, he, was, he planted churches all across the known world. He discipled and mentored future leaders of the Christian church. He experienced powerful miracles. He, the Lord used him to perform powerful miracles. He witnessed mass groups of people place their faith in Christ. But here, he tells us that the secret to a long life lived for Christ is verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. In other words, he refused to eat the rat poison of complacent Christianity. Now listen, he no doubt thanked God for all the things that the Lord had done in the past. It's appropriate to thank God. It's appropriate to, to feel satisfaction in God for what he's done through our lives. He praised God. But he pressed forward towards the future with great anticipation of what God might do. Friends, there are few instructions more important for a church plant than this one. I think we're still a church plant. We're kind of. Mickey says we're not anymore. I don't know when you stop being a church plant and when you start becoming a church. I don't know. But wherever we're at on that spectrum, there, there is few more important instructions to heed than this one. Listen, if you've been around Living Hope for the last three and a half years, you've really seen God do incredible things. Really, really incredible things. You think about this building and how we even heard about this building. Hannah Stinson was going to a church. It was meeting here. It was seen to be thriving from the outside. And all of a sudden, it says, hey, we're going to close our door in three weeks' time. And Hannah was, was going to the church at the time and comes and says to us, hey, guys, you might want to check out this church. It was the exact moment that we were like, we need, to, we need to find a new meeting space. And then we come in here. We have no money in the bank. There's, we have, there's just a few people in, that are coming to the church. And we're like, oh, my goodness. Like, we, we, what, would, what would life even look like here? We can't even afford a month's rent, but we're going to fake it till you make it with these guys. And then we get there like, hey, we want, you, we want you guys. There's other people ahead of you. But we want you because, of, because we see where you're at. Doctor, you guys are solid theologically. We see where you're at. We're like, oh, cool, great. And then, and then we see people come to faith in Christ. And we baptize a guy in August of 2020 who lived 30 plus years as a practicing homosexual man in a drag and drag. 
We get to witness his baptism. He becomes a member of this church. We have our first church membership Sunday in August of 2020. And then, and then this church kindly says, we want you to come on full time, Matt. And so we don't really have the funds to do it, but we have faith. And the moment, listen, the moment, the moment that I went full time, that gap of money that we didn't have, we immediately had. And we've never stopped having and then you think about all the, you know, just like the people, you know, like, what, this is incredible. We're, we're surprised, Zach and Tim, we're surprised that anyone comes back another week. And you look, know, like people love being here. They love the Lord. They love the church. We've seen people come to faith. We've seen incredible things. Listen, you want to know what my attitude is? I want my attitude to be like Paul. God, thank you so much. Lord, it's not that we're not satisfied. I love it so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing what you've done. Amazing. I never, I never dreamed you would do it. I have faith that you could do it. I had no faith in myself. You've done it. You're doing it. Thank you. And then I'm saying, but we have not seen the beginning. <laughs> you know what? We have a global vision. We want to see, see and send missionaries to the world, to the nations, to the unreached people groups of the world who've never heard of Jesus, who've never heard that God has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. We want, we want to be a flagship church where people feel called to missions, they come here, they're built up in their faith, and then they're launched out like warriors into the mission, into the nations, and this church has the finances to to give to those people, to give to those people so that more people come to know Christ and more churches are planted across the globe. We, we want to see a, ch- a children's ministry established for the next generations hearing the name of Jesus and what God has done for us in sending and sacrificing his son on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We want to see more people come to faith. We want to see more baptisms, not because, oh, yeah, baptisms are exciting. No, we're not faking anything here. We want to see genuine conversion. We want to see people really come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, come under his rule and reign. That's my posture. The church plant is important, and I have to know, is that your posture? I think it is. I think it is. So you know what that means? There are really exciting days ahead. Really exciting days ahead. So friend, let's forget the past. And let's press on towards the future so that we might live for Christ for the rest of our lives. Let's keep on keeping on. That takes us to our second point. Following the right examples, verses 17 to 21. In the first section, and in our first point, Paul details for us the what, that we should keep on keeping on. But in this section, he describes for us the why, because our life depends upon it. As we will see in this passage, his warning is not simply for them to press on so that they might have a more successful life or happier relationships or healthier marriages. No, his why is much more sobering. His why is a matter of life and death. And to make his point, he provides two examples. One example 
is to follow. And one example is to avoid. The first is, he provides us with an example to follow in verse 17, where he says this, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul wants these Christians to emulate the example of his life because he models having a hope that is outside of himself. But his enemies, the enemies, the Judaizers, are pointing to themselves and their works as reason for their hope. Now remember, friends, Paul is preparing this church for the expected and the anticipated arrival of the Judaizers, who were a group of individuals that trusted in this formulaic teaching. Jesus plus works equals salvation. That means that these individuals were placing their hope in themselves, in their accomplishments, in their works for salvation. But not him or Epaphroditus or Timothy or the other faithful individuals that he mentions in chapter 4. Not them. The example of their lives tells us the location of their hope. Paul's hope in knowing God, sharing in Christ's suffering and attaining the resurrection from the dead, his hope is not in something that he does, but in someone that he trusts. In verse 20, he tells us this, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Why is he drawing attention to the anticipation of Christ's second return here? Well, the reason goes back to verse 12 where he says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. The Christian must know that that perfection in Christ will never be achieved in this life. Try as we might, press on as we do, do, strain as hard as we can, but our hope of being made perfect in Christ, that is the absence of sin, and loving him with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength, this will only be realized at the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back for his church, Paul says in verse 21, then he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, friends, Christ, Christ is our hope of life beyond the grave. Christ is our hope for salvation. Christ is our hope for preservation in this life. Christ is our hope of resurrection. And it must not be found. This hope must not be found in something that we do or something that we contribute or how well we behave or how well we do this or that particular spiritual discipline. Our hope must be found squarely and solely in the person and in the work of Christ alone. 
Because he has made us his own, we can trust his promise to come back for his help. Second, Paul knows, Paul wants us to know that there are examples of those whom we should avoid. And he tells about these individuals in verses 18 to 19. He says this, for many, what a sobering word, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Walk as enemies of the cross. This is their first and most fundamental identity. Enemies of the cross. That phrase tells us everything we need to know about the rest of their lives. Listen, Paul doesn't have a personal vendetta against these teachers. He's not cranky. He's not upset. Something personally with these individuals. And so he's taking shots at them in the book of Philippians. That's not at all what he's doing here. He's not a disgruntled Christian who's sensitive to criticize all the time. Paul has a doctrinal concern that hinges upon life and death. This is a matter of first importance in Paul's mind. It's no small matter. They, these individuals, these Judaizers, are enemies of the cross because they live and they teach that they don't need the cross. But for the Christian, the cross is everything to us. It's why we wear the cross. It's why people get tattoos of the cross. It's why crosses are in our homes. Because the cross means everything to the Christian. The cross guarantees our right standing before God. The cross guarantees the forgiveness of our sins. The cross provides us with the assurance of eternal life. The cross is everything to the Christian. Friend, answer this question for me. Is the cross everything to you? Here's one one way to know the answer to that question. Do you boast in the cross or do you trust in yourself for salvation? Do you boast in the cross or are you trusting in yourself? Things that you do. Disciplines that you develop. Be right with God. With tears in his eyes, Paul continues this description in verse 19. He says, their end is destruction, which is true for everyone outside of Christ. He goes on and says, their God is their belly, which means that these Judaizers have an appetite to follow the passions of their flesh. They didn't obey God, though they claim to. Those who obey, those who obey God Love the cross. But these people love their personal passions. Next, he says they glory in their shame, which means that they boast in themselves. And they boast in their works. They boast in the fact that there's something that they do that makes them right with God. Remember, Paul was someone who counted all of his personal righteousness as rubbish. Verse 8. 
But these people consider their works as treasure. And he says that they have minds set on earthly things, which is the total opposite of the Christian who has their citizenship in heaven. So friend, here's another question that we have to ask ourselves. Am I following the right examples in my Christian life? Am I trying to emulate the right examples in my Christian life? Here's one way that we can answer that question. There's a number of ways, but here's one way. Do the people whom you are most influenced by promote godliness or do they promote worldliness? Do they, do they promote do they promote leaning forward with your hands stretched out and your neck stretched out to cross the finish line faithfully? Or do they promote living like the world six days out of the week, but on the seventh day to attend church? And maybe you know, that's the holy day. Who are you most influenced by? Who are the examples that you're trying to emulate? That leads to our third and final point this morning. Stand firm to press on. Stand firm to press on. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul concludes this section with a commanding charge. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and long for my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Friends, not only is Paul's affection for this church coming through in this, in this verse, but he also communicates a secret to successful Christian ambition. Standing firm on the gospel is how we grow and press on in the gospel. Standing firm on the gospel is how we grow and press on in the gospel. Now listen, this should come as a surprise to you that he would end this commanding charge, this commanding address of Christian progress with a call to stand. <laughs> He's been calling, press on. Strain forward. And you're like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready. You know, you've got me out of my foxhole. I was scared. I was afraid of failure. I was complacent because of my successes. But now I'm out of the foxhole. I'm ready to run into the enemy fire. And then he says, stand firm. What? Why do you? <laughs> okay. I didn't think that's where you were going with this. The reason he does this is everything. It's everything. Paul knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. It, the reason he does this is everything. As Christians, though we are called to march forward, as Christians, as a local church, though we are called to mar march forward, we are not seeking to gain new ground. We're not seeking to gain unaccomplished ground because Christ has already won the war. The work of salvation is finished. It's accomplished. 
The war is over. We're not yin and yang trying to battle good with evil. Who's going to win this tug of war? That's not the Christian life. The Christian's fighting in a war that's already been won. Christ says, if you're a Christian, he says, you are mine. I've seized you. I've taken possession of you. (laughs) We march forward in a war that's already won. And that should give us all the confidence in the world. That should give us all the confidence in the world that when he says to us, forget your failures, that means that he doesn't remember them. He's already won the war. When he tells us to forget our successes, he knows what he's saying. We carry the message of the finished work of Christ on the cross to people. Which means that our job is to stand firm on the cross of Christ. To stand firm on the gospel. Beloved, it is the cross of Christ that guarantees, accomplishes, secures, and promises our redemption. (laughs) So friend, how is your intensity in following Christ. May God give us the grace we need this morning to forget the past and to press on towards the future so that we might live for Christ for the rest of our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, your word is so fun. It is so convicting. It is so inspiring. It is so humbling. It is so activating. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us a charge to press on. Thank you that you call us to forget what lies behind. Thank you, Lord. We do ask that you would give us the grace to obey this charge. Without your help, we are totally incapable of doing this. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.